Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Marieta Vasquez. She's a pediatrician at Yale University. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Yes, I'm. Uh, my name is Marieta Vasquez. I'm originally from San Juan, Puerto Rico, and I'm a pediatric infectious disease specialist at Yale University School of Medicine. I work uh, both in infectious diseases and general pediatrics and work with a primarily Hispanic and underserved population in New Haven, Connecticut, and I do a lot of work with uh, immigrants and immigrant health uh, in Connecticut. So, Dr. Vasquez, it's been about a year since Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico and its neighboring islands. We now know it's had a devastating effect in terms of the death toll and damages to the infrastructure. I remember around this time last year, you were very involved in the relief efforts, and I was wondering whether you could tell us a little bit more about how that went. Yes, it's incredible that that a year has passed, but it is coming up. And uh, what happened in, in Puerto Rico was the largest disaster of the, of the century. No natural disaster in the United States or really anywhere in the Caribbean compared to what happened with, with Hurricane Maria. But in a nutshell, it was really the perfect storm hitting a small uh, island and group of islands because the entire Virgin Islands uh, were affected in the, in the Caribbean but a hurricane of immense magnitude that occurred right after another hurricane had occurred with complete saturation of the of the of the island of the of the land on top of an island who that already had a broken economy the country had been bankrupt for a number for a number of years and the reason I think why it was so devastating is that there was a tremendous mismatch between resources, preparation, and the magnitude of the, of the natural disaster. So much so that it was really, now that we look back, it was really impossible for Puerto Rico to, to withstand the storm. And soon after it occurred, myself and a group of physicians here at Yale who are originally from Puerto Rico. We call ourselves a diaspora. We Our heart and families are in Puerto Rico, but our work and lives brought us here in the United States. Mm-hmm. We started figuring out what we could do to help. And that's really how what is now a movement of the diaspora started. And uh, what transpired was really a, what I call a labor of love. But when we look back on, on, on what Puerto Ricans and many others did to help the island of, of Puerto Rico, is it's pretty unique because the help, the immediate relief in immediately post-disaster that the island needed, which usually comes from authorities and large organizations, didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So in the aftermath, the immediate relief actually came from smaller groups, groups like ourselves, mostly from outside of the island for for a number of reasons. But in a nutshell, that's that's basically what we did. Our group focused on medical relief. Mm -hmm. We were sending medical supplies, medications, and um, articles of first need like water, 
courses, just lots and lots of supplies um, immediately. And then afterwards, we, we sort of branched out to many other um, initiatives. So how did you go about collecting all this medical supply that you, you and your peers needed to send over to Puerto Rico? Basically, it started with a very few people, and and the the algorithm we were actually putting together into we've put together into an abstract, and and we're writing a publication. We started small, and and the, I think the first step is really to reach near, but reach high. And and what I mean by that is when faced with a huge task. The logical step is to reach to your peers. So I reached to my institution, to Yale New Haven Hospital Leadership, but I went straight to the top and presented what was at hand. By this is we're talking about 20, 24, 48 hours after the disaster. Not many people knew about it, so I, I basically presented what had happened, what was going on. By then, I, I was we were fortunate enough to reach people in the island, so we knew exactly what to ask for. Um, and we presented the needs, the immense needs of the people in Puerto Rico, but also had skin in the game. So th- this, this statement that I said, reach near and reach high, needs to be accompanied by a very clear ask, knowing exactly what you're asking for. I didn't say just help Puerto Rico. We said Puerto Rico needs this list of things. Mm-hmm. And you also need to be ready to, to put yourself in the mix. So not just help us, but this is exactly what we need and this is what we are going to do about it. And I think that th- that's one of the reasons why the ask was extremely successful and within 7 days of the disaster when the airports were still closed to commercial airplanes and um, a lot of the supplies were just held at ports we were successful in being the first large medical relief uh, effort, and we placed it right at the doorstep of the main hospital in in Puerto Rico. And really, what that what that did not only did it make us feel like the system worked, we, we were we were successful in our first task, but it really showed us that this could be done and that it could be emulated by many other centers and. Right after that, what that led was sort of the recognition that we needed to replicate that because, then again, the need superseded the resources. And at that time, we reached out to many other centers uh, to, to do the same. And, and it, it really became a, a large wave of help from the, from the diaspora pointing out, which I think it's one of the most interesting things when you think about the relief efforts immediately post-hurricane, the uniqueness was that this was done with grassroots movements. Mm -hmm. This was not FEMA, the Red Cross, you know, Doctors Without Borders, which they don't really work in U.S. oil, but, but that type of sort of large organizations. In the immediate aftermath, it was really ground roots, small organizations that that led the way, and um, and that's very inspiring. I think it's it's unique. Absolutely. It tells you what P 
people can do nowadays with things like podcasts, which you have, using <laughs> technological resources, using social media. Social media was key, a key role to what we were able to accomplish. But it's really um, relief of the early 2000s. Uh, and, um, and in the future, because we need to think about what's coming next, it's really, I think, energized individuals that when disaster happens, and it doesn't even need to be a hurricane, it could be a mass shooting, it could be... An earthquake. An earthquake, any sort of disaster. It's really time for individuals to take charge Mm -hmm. and take the baton and say, let's not just sit and wait for large organizations to take over. We matter. You matter. You sitting there listening to this... You can do something. You are. You can be very effective um, if you're willing to work. It takes hard work, but it can definitely be done. Right. I remember when you told us about this, you were saying how little you had time at, back then for sort of personal life things. <laughs> uh, you talked a little bit about transportation in terms of getting the supplies over. And I remember there being challenges, like the president having to eventually agreed to temporarily lift the Jones Act in order for people to ship um, goods on non-U.S. flagships. I'm wondering, so like, how did you end up being able to get all this medical supply that you gathered here in Connecticut all the way over to Puerto Rico? It was, it was not me. It was a group of us. So mm-hmm. one person can't could could have right. never done all of this. So <laughs> we were a group of physicians, mm-hmm. and um, once we gathered the goods, they needed to cross water, and and that's one of the many um, things that made this this disaster unique and even at a larger scale. That if something happens in Texas, you might not get supplies there within. 24 hours if the airports are closed, but eventually trucks will drive anywhere across land. In Puerto Rico, it was, it was, very, it was very different. We needed to fly things, and uh, airplanes are very expensive. And one of those uh, members, Dr. Cesar Sierra, made contact with commercial airlines. At that time, within days of the disaster, mm-hmm. there were a few commercial airlines that were flying in to bring emergency personnel. And he somehow got United Airlines to allow us to bring in about 2,000 pounds. And the story goes that the day we were going to ship everything from the Yale storage places and Yale New Haven Hospital gave us for free the ground transportation to get to JFK, um, I realized that I didn't have 2,000 pounds, but I had 17,000 pounds to to travel. And, you know, you send them first and you apologize later. But they they were magnificent. They were incredible and said, sure, we'll, we'll take them. So for in the beginning, it was through lots of telephone calls and conversations. And we were able to bring things in in commercial airlines uh, for free. Once commercial airlines started bringing in real passengers, that ceased. And then we were able to bring goods in private airplanes all through donations. The um, the network max that ensued 
was incredible and, and beyond my comprehension. I could not at this, even a year later, I can't tell you the number of people who helped on this. We were in Connecticut and we were trying to facilitate because we, we, we did a lot of help and consulting mm-hmm. for other centers, other states to, to do the same. So lots of phone calls. And sometimes we were here in Connecticut trying to figure out how to get goods from New Orleans down to Miami because somebody had a private airplane mm-hmm. and lots of calls and texts would come through saying so-and-so has space for an extra 5,000 pounds and then we needed to sort of rush and figure out how are we going to get them down to whatever whatever airport. Um, it was very complicated. It takes a lot of people, but um, it, it somehow it somehow happened. People just helped and we communicated effectively not so much so amongst ourselves in the beginning but eventually one of the good things that occurred from this disaster is that now the diaspora is not fully organized but better organized now we know each other a little bit more immediately in after the hurricane had we had a large network of physicians of Puerto Rican physicians in the mainland people interested in Puerto Rican affairs it would have been as easy as sending a text. In the beginning, we didn't even know who mm-hmm. to text. Um, yeah, so that fabric is, has been really instrumental. Definitely, and evolving, and hopefully will continue, and all of these connections we will continue to forge. Mm-hmm. Now, as an infectious disease specialist, one thing that you're probably acutely aware of is in a situation like a hurricane infections immediately after... Uh, especially for the kids, right, Mm -hmm. Um, happened. So how did you get to sending the message to think about ways to, say, take care of the water, um, avoiding, uh, you know, gastroenteritis and those types of things? How did you get that message across? Yeah, I'm I'm glad you you talk about outbreak uh, prevention and outbreak management because, yes, I'm an infectious disease specialist, and one of the – in sort of how I – Summarize one of the steps in the relief effort was don't do one thing, do many. And just during the time that we were organizing ourselves, talking to other centers, collecting medications, donations, uh, medical supplies, and sending them, it became very clear that we needed to do more. And, and I, myself, and a pediatrician in Puerto Rico over text sat down and wrote a outbreak control proposal that focused on clean water, uh, vaccine-preventable diseases, uh, preventing outbreaks of leptospirosis, preventing outbreaks of scabies, uh, um, many, many other diseases. So we put together a a very quick uh, manual or a five-page document and started distributing it to people. But it, it was very... It was very easy to write because mm-hmm. we knew what needed to be done and and distributed, but the distribution was very difficult because there was no electricity. People were still very isolated. Um, the communication with the Department of Public Health was almost non-existent. So we tried our best by texting, by contacting through telephone, social media, WhatsApp um, platforms, Facebook key players in Puerto Rico because we we knew we had connections, but it wasn't as easy and as effective had there 
been a platform, for example, had we been able to just send it to a newspaper that mm-hmm. was that was up and running. Around that time, I also became very involved with radio. Radio became the main way that people communicated because that was pretty much the only thing that was that was up. So I went on several online radio shows to talk about the importance of outbreak control and vaccines. I was very worried about the vaccine supply, which ended up being a big problem. And within probably within two weeks or three weeks, the outbreak started Mm. occurring. The other thing that we did in terms of outbreak control and education was we knew that there was a message to be sent out. So we had the idea of creating mini clips, which um, we were able to write with the collaboration of many people. It was really um, very inspiring to me how within weeks, medical students, uh, grad students, lots of people here at Yale and in Puerto Rico would write and say, I'm a student, I'm an expert on this, or I just want to help. And with their help, we created these uh, uh, manuals for clean water, varicella outbreak, flu outbreak, and so they helped us write the mini clips, and then we taped them at Yale and distributed them through social media. And those were really the, for the first few months, were the only really educational clips that were that were out there, and um, and many people watched them and commented on them. It was. A good learning experience, I think, for people in the audience, if you've never engaged in these, it's a wonderful, wonderful learning opportunity because to be able to do these mini clips, you have to read a lot and distill everything into a couple of paragraphs. But one of the challenges, for example, if I can get into it, if you talk about clean water, well, we couldn't just say, turn off your, you know, open your faucet, get water, turn off your stove and boil water because mm-hmm. nobody had running water and nobody had electricity and there was no stove. So so it was very challenging, um, but worthwhile. And these are materials that are free and on the web that people, people can access. Soy la doctora Marieta Vázquez, infectóloga de la Universidad de Yale, hablándoles sobre la importancia del lavado de las manos. Lavarse las manos es una de las medidas más importantes para evitar enfermedades y transmitir los microbios que nos infectan a otras personas. Es de suma importancia, sobre todo ahora, después del huracán María. Dr. Vasquez, you told me earlier that you and other members of the diaspora here in Connecticut and across the United States have been working on raising funds for Puerto Rico since the hurricane. And I'm wondering, you know, what, what do you think the funds are going to be used for? Um, and, you know, where are the areas where the, the need is at its highest? Yeah. I think this is one of the very inspiring things that have come out from the catastrophe that the there is memory and and now it's been almost a year and there are still events to raise funds for the for the needy because as you know the initial catastrophe is usually the one that takes all the attention but but it's 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 really a long-term long-term plan um, many funds have been raised outside of Puerto Rico And they have gone, I would say, primarily in two areas. One is on the environmental displaced individuals. Many Puerto Ricans had to leave the country and are now resettled in the United States. Um, There have been lots of problems for many reasons, from lack of communication, not knowing the language, really leaving the country without 
even the most simple of um, necessities like clothing, for example, um, going into areas where they, you know, isolation, mm-hmm. um, prejudice, even a little bit of bullying. Um, so some of the um, help has gone to resettlers that are that are right here with us. The majority of the funds have gone back to the to the island. A lot has been um, allocated to medical equipment. For example, our team that initially focused on medications and medical supplies have tried to help small organizations and hospitals to buy, for example, um, if an ultrasound machine broke, mm-hmm. to get a new one or fix an old one. Um, to get some supplies for operating rooms, to get um, supplies for the elderly, because in all of this, the people, one of the people, the groups, the medical groups that has suffered the most are those with chronic illnesses and the elderly. So things like getting wheelchairs, um, etc. There's so much more to be done, and I think even though there's, as I said, it's it. It's heartwarming to see all the good and all the resources that have been raised. There's still a tremendous need. Um, many of the small ground roots organizations in Puerto Rico that have nothing to do with government uh, groups have received funds from from outside and from private donations mm-hmm. and from companies as well that have helped. At some point, it became clear that in the immediate aftermath of a natural disaster, you want to help with immediate goods, money, resource, you know, goods and um, and monetary uh, help. But afterwards, what we need to do is help the economy. So how do we help Puerto Rico? We support its tourism industry. That is very important. We go, we visit, we spend money. And rather than just sending cases of water, we need to somehow allow the local businesses to, to thrive sell, again, to thrive again, and, mm-hmm. and sell the goods. So, um, I think this is an ongoing conversation. The um, the island still has many needs. I think we need to keep it under our radar that a new hurricane season is coming. Right. We're hoping that the island is going to be better prepared. Certainly, the population is. Um, the the um, Hurricane Maria is very fresh in everybody's minds, and I think the the ability to prepare as best as they can for the population is there. Whether the infrastructure, um, like you know the electrical systems in in the island, are ready for another disaster, it's we will see. Mm-hmm. So in terms of preparation as hurricane season is approaching, uh, are there any sort of efforts being put in place by the diaspora right now um, to prepare the island? Um, I am not in actively involved in, in, in those efforts, but absolutely. A lot of resources have gone to creating new energy solutions, generators, um, Communications. That was that was a big one, mm-hmm. um, and it's not only from the diaspora, but also from U.S. businesses and from from elsewhere, to to try to prepare. Um, I go back to one of the original arguments about the importance of grassroots grassroots movements. 
to the local restaurant owner, for example, it is now clear to them that after the next disaster, they cannot rely on government to provide food, shelter, um, electricity, and the raw materials for them to make the food that they sell in their restaurants. So what, what has happened since Maria is now the, we'll go back to the example of the restaurant owner, knows that he or she needs to be ready for the next disaster, and they need to have a supply of diesel at all times mm-hmm. for, for a rainy day or for the next disaster. In that sense, I think the population is ready. Whether the island as a whole is ready for a disaster of this magnitude, it, it, I think that would be very difficult. Yeah, understandably so. So I have one more question for you. Um, this is kind of related to medical education. Um, so we're, you know, in the sort of era of very acute climate change, and we see it every year um, as it's, as the seasons pass. And I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of what medical schools need to be doing to prepare physicians to be more ready for um, these sort of natural disasters, because we don't learn much about, you know, disaster relief or disaster readiness. What And you just went through this last year. You know, what do you tell medical schools? Yeah. I, I think that's that's an incredibly important take-home message, because when, when disaster happens, we need to think of what we can do better. I was never trained in mm-hmm. disasters. I pulled from what I remembered as a child, what you need and how to what to do um, after after a hurricane. And since then, there is more awareness. I have been approached by multiple medical students demanding, asking for this type of training. And there is. And medical, some medical schools had groups. The problem is that these groups that had expertise on um, natural disasters and emergency preparedness were in silos, were mm-hmm. just training two or three emergency medicine physicians or toxicologists or environmentalists. What we need to do is get is get the experts and bring them to medical education. Absolutely. Not only medical students, I'm an attending, I've been in practice for a very long time and I had zero training. What we to did CME. <laughs> Yes, what what we did required tremendous efforts that had I had the tools, basic tools of algorithms, uh, it would have it would have made our jobs easier and we would have been much more effective mm-hmm. in our ability to provide to provide the care. So I think it's incumbent upon the medical students to say and demand, I think this needs to be very important because again, Individuals matter. You matter as an individual. We cannot just sit and say the Red Cross or the government or these other organizations are going to do it. And if we have the right training, um, I, I think we'll, we'll be more, more effective and we'll be able to, to provide more assistance. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And uh, I hope to have you back on the pod for further discussion. Thank you. All right. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.